Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good morning and welcome to a special forum co-presented by the Cleveland Council on World Affairs and the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Karina Van Vliet, CEO of the Cleveland Council on World Affairs, and it's my pleasure to introduce this morning's speaker, founder, former CEO, and Chairman Emeritus of World Fuel Services, Mr. Paul Stebbins. We're here to talk about the U.S. debt. Earlier this month, our national debt, the sum of all outstanding debt held by the federal government, exceeded $22 trillion, the largest sovereign debt in the world for a single country, and it's expected to increase in the coming decade. Our speaker argues that our debt level and the political conversations surrounding our debt and federal budget have come to symbolize the brokenness of our political system. As such, Mr. Stebbings is a founding member of the Fix US Initiative part of the nonpartisan campaign to fix the debt, which is leading a national conversation committed to listening, identifying, and learning about our political problems and possible fixes. So this is a fundamentally important domestic topic, but it is also a vital foreign policy issue. And Mr. Sebbins will explain how the debt and our political dysfunction make us less competitive, hurts our economy, and challenges our global leadership. A graduate of Georgetown University, Mr. Stebbins co-founded TransTech Services Incorporated, a global marine fuel services company in 1985, which was then acquired by World Fuel in 1995. For more than 20 years, Mr. Stebbins served as an executive with World Fuel and traveled extensively throughout the world, helping to build the company's global network. Today, Mr. Stebbins serves as a director of World Fuel, of First Solar and Silk Road, which is founded by Chalice Yoyoma. Since 2012, he has been involved with the campaign to fix the debt, and he is also a founding member of the Fix US Initiative. He is also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the Cleveland Council on World Affairs and the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Mr. Paul Stebbings. Good morning. Uh, thank you, Karina, and thank you, Dan, so much for having me here today. Uh, what I understand in Cleveland is a spring day, that there's a picnic later, right? <laughs> so, you know, there's an old expression, execution as a way of focusing one's thoughts. And when I got off at the airport in Cleveland, I'm a guy from Miami. This is an 80-degree differential. I'm telling you, I was feeling very focused when I got here. Um, so I'm glad to be in Cleveland. Uh, there's an old, uh, some of you may remember a guy named Hubert Humphrey who ran for president against uh, Richard Nixon back in 1968. And Hubert Humphrey had a great expression that was basically that Washington, D.C. is 26 square miles surrounded by reality. And uh, we are here in reality, which is nice to be outside of this vortex called D.C. Um, so the debt, Paul Stebbins, why am I here? My journey is I'm here more, uh, I'm an entrepreneur. I started a company when I was in my 20s. That grew into a large global Fortune 100 company. 
so I'm sort of uh, exhibit A of the American dream. And along that way, I you know, worked at gas stations and drove lumber trucks and worked in a mine in uh, northern Washington state. And I've done lots of different things. But that journey finally took me into business. Uh, I am actually living proof that a government major out of Georgetown can get a job. So that was uh, back then, that was kind of a tough thing to get. Um, so, but why am I here? Along my journey in my corporate life, I joined something called the Business Roundtable. And at that time, we were in the middle, and this is back in sort of 20, uh, 2009, 2010, 11. And the Simpson-Bowles Commission had been founded to help us think intelligently with intentionality about the long-term threat to our economy and to our sort of place in the world that the national debt represented. And at that time, there was an effort to strike what some of you may remember was the grand bargain. And the bargain was to basically finally get a grip on what entitlement spending was all about, because that was the big driver of growth. If you look at the baby boom and you look at what was happening in the growth of a new generation that was now coming into retirement age, we were putting enormous stresses on our social services network. Medicaid, Medicare uh, were growing exponentially and were outpacing the growth of our economy. So the Simpson-Bowles Commission said, look, long term, this cancer is going to undo the foundation of our nation. And we have, a, we have sort of a duty of care to look at this intelligently. What also required that you look at the revenue side, the tax side. Now, some of you may remember that at that time there was a guy named Grover Norquist who was well known for saying, you know, sign the tax pledge, the no taxes pledge. So we ended up in a situation where we knew a lot about how to fix this really difficult problem. And back then, to give you an idea of what the problem was, the debt issue was sort of 13 trillion, maybe. And we figured that if we could close a gap of maybe, you know, four trillion, we might be able to get a grip on this thing. Well, you all know what's happened in the meantime, but at that time we thought that was a big ask. Well, we had a lot of information about how to solve this long-term problem and we couldn't get it done. The grand bargain fell apart. And as a member of the Business Roundtable, there was a guy named Dave Cody at Honeywell, who, uh, who I think uh, Dick knows back from his TRW days, but uh, Dave happened to be on the Simpson-Bowles Commission. And he came back to the BRT and he said, you know, we're 68% of the GDP and we're supposedly leaders in this country and we're not leading anything. We are completely out to lunch. We're flying in on the G5s, and we're doing our meetings with the White House and the Senate, and then we're blowing out of here, and nobody's taking any ownership of this issue. And by the way, last I checked, a bunch of us in this room at the BRT all have K Street offices that have been building those tax code expenditures, you know, those loopholes for all these years. So we're part of the problem. We're not taking any ownership of that. So if we're not going to stand up and be counted and actually have a voice, why would anybody in this country think that this was a credible initiative? Well, that kind of got my attention. And the problem with CEOs, God bless them. I was one of them. I'm a recovering CEO. It's like AA. Hi, I'm Paul. I was a CEO. You know, I was like, hi, Paul. Uh, anyway, so I have recovered from that world. But when you're in that vortex and you were living on airplanes and you're flying off to Japan for lunch and dinner in Hong Kong and you're back, I mean, you're not, you know, there's just a lack of uh, a focus. And I think there was a moment in time there where the business guy said, geez, you know, this is actually a real threat. Some of you may remember that great uh, New Yorker cartoon that shows the two people in their robes with the staffs and one is walking towards the truth and the other is coming back from the truth and the one that's coming back from the truth, their hair is like this, you know, they're completely flipped out. Well, that was how we all felt. I mean, once you actually start looking at this problem and you realize that in the history of the United States, the average debt to GDP, and that tends to be the way we measure this, uh, this exercise, the average debt to GDP over the history of the, of the United States was 38%. Its highest ever was after World War II at 108%. As recently as 2007, we were 37% debt to GDP. And we are now, some of you will look at this wonderful slide, I decided to pick one slide to, to get everybody's attention. We are 78% and in no time we will be well over 100%. Well, Greece is 
right? The difference is we're 24% of the world's GDP. After World War II, we were 52% of the world's GDP. And as recently as the 1970s, when you're 52% of the world's GDP, it gave you the great luxury of having a tremendous amount of wealth and power and ability to decide. And as recently as the 70s, about 70% of our budget was discretionary. It meant we could all decide what we were going to do with that 70%. Well, now only about 30% is discretionary, and half of that is defense, which means all the other things that we as citizens want to talk about doing whether it be a Head Start program or education or investment in infrastructure, R&D, science and technology, all the things that allow us to be a viable economy in a competitive world, right, are all wrapped up in that 15% and it's being eclipsed every single year geometrically is being eclipsed by the increases in mandated spending. And the mandated spending is Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, some uh, cost of living increases for the military, and then of course the killer interest on the debt and it is getting worse every day. When I gave these talks about three years ago, it was 6% of the budget interest. Now it's 9, and it will quickly be 12. And so when you think about what that means, people say, well, how big is that number? Well, right now, if you add 1% change in interest rates, you've added $1.9 trillion over the next 10 years to our debt. Just one point of interest rate. So the interest has gone from about $200 billion to quickly rising up to you know, something closer to... Uh, 400 billion, and we will clearly be well on our way to 900 billion a year out of our annual budget of about 4.4 trillion. So interest is the secret killer. So my journey was, okay, so here I am a business guy, and I'm trying to help with this thing, and I watched the grand bargain fall apart. And what astonished me, and this is the rooms with, you know, Speaker Boehner and President Obama, and a lot of very well-intentioned people, the gang of eight, the gang of six, we had all sorts of people working on this issue. And the business people were fundamentally practical. This was not ideological. The idea was like, let's get in a room and fix this darn thing. And you had guys like Fred Smith at FedEx who was saying, you know, look, I'm a depreciation guy. I've got trucks and airplanes all over the world. I don't care. Get rid of all my depreciation. Just get rid of it. Get rid of all these exemptions, fix the code, rationalize the tax code, let's do the right things on entitlement, let's not make people vulnerable, let's take the most vulnerable in our society and protect them. Let's do that and let's do it well. You can't get it done. You cannot get it done. So the thing that was very frustrating was to learn how broken the system was because all the incentives work against you. I used to, you know, I come from a world, and most business people in this room come from a world where knowing what the right answer is is sort of compelling enough to get in a room and sort it out. You might negotiate a bit one way or the other, but the idea is you pretty much knew what to do. That is not how Washington works, particularly today. So it was a great revelation that there were deeper, more profound things impacting our ability to solve these problems than just whether you had knowledge, right? And if you're a congressperson from some district and you've had to sign a pledge that says you're not going to raise taxes or somebody's going to put it on YouTube and beat you in the primaries with a $5 million attack, you're not going to have courage. Everybody says, well, gosh, all these people, I send them to Washington, they should have political courage. Well, it's tough to have political courage when, you know, rule one, get elected. Rule two, see rule one. And how do you get reelected in the political process today? You better be paying attention who's sitting in your reception area and is going to take a primary fight against you. And meanwhile, some of them have, we had the unintended consequences of some of our reforms, like televising subcommittees. So when you used to be able to work quietly and privately in subcommittee and get deals done that would then go to the main committee, that's all televised now, which means that's a YouTube clip to be used against you in a campaign. 
So everybody lives in constant fear that if you move one iota off the orthodoxy, one iota off the party line, you are going to get disintegrated politically. You will be the artist formerly known as elected. So most people, that tends to focus their thoughts. And so that's why they don't have courage. It's not about whether they don't know what the right thing is, but none of the incentives work. And then you say, well, gosh, why don't you step over that line? Well, they want to come back. And that great middle of America, that great centrist uh, common sense population in the country, doesn't have the power as a united force to actually impact that. So the debt has gone up. It will interest everybody in this room to know that this year's deficit, which is, of course, different from the debt. That's our annual you know, borrowing. But the deficit this year is going to go up 55% in a Republican Congress and administration. We've added 55% to the deficit just this year, right? I mean, this is amazing. So we're going to go from $480 billion to $980 billion this year. And we have increased spending, and we did tax reform, which was not tax reform. It was tax cuts. So one of the things that's interesting, if you go back for a little bit of the history of Simpson-Bowles, Dave Camp, the Republican who ran the Ways and Means Committee, and Max Baucus, who ran Finance and Senate, they worked for three years on this, what was something that was called in the Simpson-Bowles plan is the Zero Plan. And the idea was if we are going to be competitive internationally, and this is back to our international role in the world, if you're going to attract capital to the United States and be a competitive, viable, and we have big competitors now, I mean, these are not the days when Mao was running a march. I mean, we have now China Inc., and China Inc. is a competitor of enormous uh, seriousness. And yet, while they are growing, we are sort of dithering around. Well, be, to be competitive, we've got to actually stabilize all this stuff. And we don't, we don't have the political will to do that right now. So it puts us at risk internationally because you can't attract capital to the United States because we have the highest tax rate in the world. So we finally resolved some of the corporate stuff, but we never did get to the real key. The absolute killer in the whole tax issue was what we call expenditures. Now, only in Washington, in this place that's not in reality, do you call loopholes expenditures. That's what they call them. That's a really interesting word. What's an expenditure? So if you look at the pie chart as a budget, what it means is that if you actually think of all the money we pay out for all the stuff we're doing, about 26% goes out to expenditures. So you've got $1.5 trillion going out in the form of expenditures, which is what we would all know euphemistically as loopholes. So the question is, when Simpson Bowles did this, they said, look, why don't we lower all the rates? Let's just lower the rates across the board to make us competitive internationally, but get rid of all these paybacks, all these expenditures. Right? And in fact, what we'll do is we'll even give people an opportunity to come in front of Congress and defend their loophole. Now, you and I both know a lot of this stuff since the Reagan tax plan that has been put into this code over all these years, to have to stand in front of Congress and defend some of those code, they're never going to show up. No, because they're indefensible. Most people would not show up to do that. And Simpson Bowles realized that if you could actually put them on TV and have to defend some of this nonsense, most of it would go away, right? Now, there's some tough ones. Home mortgage deduction. That's a very controversial, very political one. But in general, the idea was reduce the amount of expenditures, which ups the revenue base significantly, but at the same time, you broaden the base by lowering rates. You cannot have that, con you can't have that conversation, Washington. So you can get the cuts, but you can't get all the reforms. So that's what we did. We just did tax cuts, but we didn't do reform. And that's a problem. That's a problem because the perception in Washington is that if you talk about these hard issues with citizens, they can't handle the truth. And I think most of us can handle the truth. But we don't have the honest conversation. And so it's like the Alfred North Whitehead, you know, uh, you know seek simplicity but, but distrust it. If, you know, we live in a world where everything's on a bumper sticker. So it's a cheap clarity kind of thing. I'm a, I'm a Georgetown guy, and the Jesuits used to say, be suspicious of cheap clarity. 
cheap moral clarity is false, right? Because it's like the AIDS rock, you know, you have a rock concert to solve AIDS and everybody gives $25 on the Visa card. It felt good, but you did not solve AIDS, right? Well, it's a little bit like the debt. Just because you can put it on a bumper sticker or Grover Norquist can get you to sign the no tax pledge or the AARP can send a postcard to Florida and say you're going to throw grandma into the snow if you touch entitlements. This is a false dialogue, right? And I think most of us know that as citizens. And so that brings you to this deeper issue. When I, uh, when I was involved with the grand bargain and watched it fall apart, knowing what we knew, I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm not going back to what I was doing. I, you know, it's sort of like once you know something, it's very hard. So I went to my board and I said, I'm going to quit. Well, you know, they, they thought I had cancer. You know, you, you're dying? What's the matter with you? I said, no, I want to quit. I was 55 years old and I decided to retire. I've been running a business all my life. And I started doing speaking for Maya McGinnis, who is the president of the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget. And I started going around this country, Walla Walla, San Antonio, Brownsville, Galena, Illinois, not the Council on Foreign Relations in New York and not that little place called Washington, D.C., but like real people, like who live in this country and are what's going on. Now, you go into an audience in Brownsville, Texas, and talk to accountants or teachers or local tradespeople or any kind of a civic group, and you start talking about the debt, they're all like, oh, man, why did you come and depress me? This is, like, terrible. we got this ship headed right for an iceberg. We're going to sink the ship of state. I mean, I need a martini. I want to go home and hide under the covers. I mean, it was, like, a pretty depressing topic. But what I really got out of all those was people would stand up and say, wait a minute, let me get this right. So you guys actually know about how to fix this, but we can't get it done. Like, what is wrong with our country? And we began to realize that we had a much more profound issue to deal with. What were the root causes that were causing these very perverse incentives that made it impossible for genuinely good people to not do the right thing on these complex issues? And that's what led us to build this deeper inquiry. So we spent a couple of years talking to everybody from political scientists to civics groups, to writers, to thought leaders about what were the root causes. And what we found is that there's some very interesting data. If you look at the political process today right now, and there's a wonderful study which I would recommend to you in our organization, it's on our website, but there's a group called, by More in Common is their name, and they wrote a report, 160-page report on political spectrum called Hidden Tribes. It's a very interesting thing because it basically, instead of the old conventional nomenclature that we all grew up with, left, right, liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, most of us don't actually know what those things mean anymore. We don't even know what those identities mean. They've become more and more confused and blended, and they tend to be sort of, it's like doing surgery with a blunt instrument. They're just not nuanced enough to capture the complexity of our own feelings. Well, Hidden Tribes actually began to map this. What is the more value structure underneath our decisions as citizens today, as opposed to these conventional, you know, old nomenclature? And one of the things that it reveals is that on the left, you've got about 8% of the political spectrum that is what they call the progressive activist. This is a very righteous, strident strain, highly illiberal strain of the progressive movement. And on the right, you've got what they call 6% of the population is in what they call committed conservatives. Again, a very doctrinaire, very ideological, very rigid, uncurious, non-thinking, no information required type political agenda. And that's where all the money in politics goes, is to those two extremes. And they don't want to have a conversation. Now, we grew up under the Enlightenment values. And the Enlightenment values that came from Europe into America and talked about in a national conversation, it was about scientific method, critical thinking. The entire political experiment that we know of as the United States was founded on humility and doubt. It was not created on certitude. If you look at what the founding fathers talked about, it was about debate, 
conversation. It isn't kumbaya. It doesn't mean we have to sit in a circle and hold hands and all be friends. We can have a robust fight. Madison and Hamilton fought like cats and dogs. But we ended up with a process that was designed, by its very design, to force us to hammer out these issues as citizens because there was something called the transcendent idea of America that we all believed in. And we might fight it out every single day about specific issues, but we were all part of this great experiment, this extraordinary experiment which is unique in political history. Well, we're quickly eroding that because we now live in a world where the louder you yell, the more you scream, the more you demonize your enemy, the more you shut down conversation. That is what winning in politics is all about today. And most people sense that in their gut because when you think about the ideological rigidity that dictates these extremes, everybody else in the middle is what this report calls the exhausted majority. Has anybody watched a news thing and felt exhausted? Has anybody ever picked up a newspaper and felt exhausted? I mean, how can they scream that loud for so long? I mean, it's just nuts. And it is la 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 la. Yeah, they are yelling at Mach 5. And so there's a sense that, look, I'm being told to pick a fight, you know, pick a side in a, in a debate I don't even understand, in a nomenclature I don't even understand, and I don't recognize it in my own life. So in most of our lives, you go to work and you compromise with the cubicle next to you, with your boss, your administrator, your neighbor, you know, the person down the hall, the supplier, the customer, your teenager to clean their room, you negotiate like crazy. Is anybody married in this room? Has <laughs> anybody? I mean, I'm just saying, it's a stretch, but I mean, I don't think most of us run our marriages through an ideological litmus test where you're absolutely not going to have any conversation. Uh, maybe Dick on the, on the muffin, maybe there's a fight, I, I'm just saying. But short of these important things like muffin selection to breakfast, we don't run our lives through an ideological litmus test. So most citizens go through their lives where they compromise all the time in a thousand different ways, and that's what Alexis de Tocqueville wrote about. That is what this experiment was about. We don't hate our neighbor because they are a Republican or a Democrat. We don't think, oh my God, my daughter might marry a Republican or a Democrat. We, that's not where we come from. And, you know, that's not the history of this tradition. But that is how the fight is held today. And that's what we see from the media. That's what we see from our political process. And so people are thinking, you know, I've got to do my job. Why can't you idiots get in a room and do your job? It's because they're paralyzed by this terribly unforgiving, relentlessly strident process of political demonization. Now, as a business guy, part of you says, well, how do you get to the bottom of that? Now, one of it is, part of it is an engineering issue. It is true that we have a primary system in this country where the true believers show up. Five to six percent of eligible voters show up in our primaries, and they are the ideologically motivated. That's your six percent and your eight percent. That's who shows up in primaries. And what happens is today that if the moderate who runs against the true believer in the primary loses, this then uh, goes to a general election. And in 46 states in this country, they have sore loser laws, which means if you are the moderate and you lose in that primary, you cannot by law run in the general election. Now, in the meantime, we've selectively gerrymandered most districts in the country because state legislatures, for the most part, it's changing, and that's part of why we're out doing our thing. But state legislatures, which are by their very nature political, they're the ones who typically do the districting, right? So it's all about positioning for advantage because the other side's the enemy. The enemy. The enemy. I thought it was us. I thought it was our country, right? It's like the news. You know, it's all about picking a side. You can't get a job in journalism today if you don't pick a side. A side? What, what happened? Like Walter Cronkite didn't have a side. There was the news, and we could debate, and we could decide whether you like the news or what you're going to do with the news or how you're going to decide to make some decision from the news, but it was all of us making a decision. It wasn't about a side. The news was not a side. 
The news was the news. Well, we live in a world where it's all about taking sides, where it becomes very tribal. So yeah, there's some engineering. We could fix the primaries. When I worked in Congress, I worked for a guy named Tim Wirth, who uh, my colleague right here remembers for USAID. Tim was in Congress for 18 years, and at that time, there were about 100 competitive districts in the country. There are 12 now, 12. So people wonder why there are not huge changes in Congress when there are big events. It's because most of them are just gerrymandered into be safe. And now you've got a system in the primaries where you're taking true believers and you're sending a pipeline of ideologues into a gerrymandered district, which is safe, that now goes to Congress, which is a decision-making body designed to compromise, and there's no compromise. Then you add Citizens United, money, and you open up the pipeline. So it used to be, for better or for worse, the parties used to sort of run that, right? So people used to ask me, how come Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan could get things done? These two old Irish guys would drink whiskey and they'd get it all fixed in a minute. Well, that's because Tip O'Neill, if you picked up the sword against Tip O'Neill, you were now on the dog catcher committee. You were the artist formerly known as elected. Your parking lot was out in Anascostia. I mean, he had real power to make your life miserable. But in those days, the deal was, look, you're going to take this really hard vote, and I'll build you an aircraft carrier on the Hudson River, and that's your museum, and we'll do a press conference, and you'll get some nice political coverage, and you'll be covered on this very difficult vote. But now we televise subcommittees, and the parties don't have that money, because now the money can go to anybody. So you have anarchy. There is no coherence or control. The leadership can barely control it as it is now. So increasing ideology, increasingly rigid, increasingly less curious, there is no conversation. And these are all values that are antithetical to the very experiment that we all hold dear, which is the American experiment. And then it gets more complicated. So what are the deeper issues beyond just engineering? What's our cultural issue? Do we teach civics anymore? No. You've got 30% of millennials that think that China is just fine. Nine guys making decisions. Like, why would you have all this mess? Let's just make it more efficient. I mean, that is an amazing thing. We don't teach it. We don't tell our national story. So it's very interesting. I, you know, I, uh, at, the, at the business roundtable, we used to get briefings from the military. And at the time that I was there, uh, Admiral Mike Mullen was the head of the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And then we used to get briefings on artificial intelligence and Chinese hacking and the Iranians and all these kind of terrible threats. Anyway, I, I was about five years ago, I was in New York with Admiral Mullen on a panel. And I asked him in a coffee break, I just said, so what are the real threats to the United States in your view? He said, oh, I'll give you four. He said, K through 12 education, the national debt, energy independence, by which he meant not oil, but fresh water and fertile soil, because the military was concerned about mass drought and mass migrations of humans and being a national security threat. And lastly, political dysfunction. I didn't, hear, I didn't hear nuclear, I didn't hear AI, I didn't hear China. I heard K through 12, national debt, energy independence, food, <laughs> water, and ultimately political dysfunction. He says that's what's gonna take down this country. And we're not even paying attention. We don't even talk about those things as citizens, right? Because we're too busy yelling at the other guy who's the enemy and you know scorched earth and all that stuff. The other thing that's interesting, to put that in some historical context, if you look at the founding of our country, George Washington, remarkable human being, in his farewell address in 1796, George Washington warned us that, of what would take down this very fragile new experiment in self-determinative government. And he said those four things were hyperpartisanship, fiscal irresponsibility, foreign intervention in our domestic affairs, how are we doing, uh, and ultimately the absence of civic education. 
Now, it's interesting. I, I was so intrigued by those that I actually went to see the farewell address. You can go to the New York Public Library in New York City, right there at Fifth Avenue and 42nd, and you can go to the curator. There is a wonderfully energetic curator there who is just dying to show off these amazing things. But George Washington's farewell address, the original, is in the New York Public Library because back when the family put it up for auction in whatever year that was, the Senate decided that they weren't going to spend any money on that stuff. So a rich guy in New York actually bought Washington's farewell address, and then he willed it to the New York Public Library. But you can go as a citizen today, and you can walk in, and they will hand you a box. And you open up the box, and there are 24 pages in thin, sort of fifth grader notebook uh, cellophane sheets. There's George Washington's original handwritten address with all the cross outs and all the notes warning us of what would take down the future of our country. It's pretty emotional. You sit there and think, my God, they, I mean, that, it's really our guy. This is the guy. So you think about that today and the presence, the knowledge, the foresight to know that these were the things that would eat at the fabric of our nation. And today we live in this entrenched system that is based on ideology, and we are moving to both extremes. And so you've got the engineering side, you've got the cultural side. If we're not teaching our national story, if we're not teaching what we celebrate, and American exceptionalism was not this jingoistic bombast of pounding our chest and beating people up in the world. That's not what American exceptionalism is about. It was about this great experiment of generosity, inclusion, diversity, right? That's what made this experiment great. But if we lose that, if we lose that, then what do we have? We'll, not only won't we fix the debt, we won't fix a lot of other things. In fact, we may not even be here. So I would argue that this deeper, more profound issue is an existential threat to the whole experiment. This just happens to be Exhibit A because it's one of many, many, many problems that we can't solve because so we're so wrapped around an axle with this unforgiving, rigid, jihadist, sort of intolerant view of ideology when most of us don't live in that reality. So what's happened? Most people have checked out of the system. They've said, hell, I, I just don't want to play anymore. I don't believe in either of you. Neither party resonates with me. None of it makes sense in my life. I don't understand words. I, you're asking me to get into this fight I don't want to be in. So the question is then, what do you do? So what do you do about that? So we've thought a lot about, all right, if we're ever going to want to fix the debt, we better fix our broken system. And fixing our broken system is not in Washington, D.C. It's in this room. And I think about it like the Wizard of Oz, right? You know, I mean, if you think about Dorothy and the Pin Man and the Lion, right? And, and what are they doing? They're looking for a heart, brain, and courage. And Dorothy wants to go home, right? And they finally show up at the Wizard of Oz, and there's some guy behind a curtain. Guess what? There's no Wizard of Oz. The heart, the brain, and the courage is in this room. It's sitting at every one of these tables. It's in each of us, right? And we are wearing the ruby slippers. But we keep waiting for somebody, Mitch McConnell, Obama, Trump, somebody, to fix all these problems. That's not who's going to do it. I'm telling you, they, the incentives don't work that way. Until we finally decide that we're going to click our heels and go home. I love my country. I miss my country, and I want to go home to my country. And I think all of us feel that way. And the question is, so how do I get home? How do I actually exercise some agency? I've been denied my sense of agency. They robbed it from us. They told us that we had no role in this, right? That the party structure was going to do it, that the ideology was going to do it, that whether it was the left doing their thing or the Tea Party doing their thing, that was going to be the answer. Well, I don't buy it. And I think that all of us have more choice and more agency in this process than we've been led to believe, and it is time to take action. So how do you do that? First, you got to join some stuff, right? And so the Fix Us campaign, which came out of the debt, again, we will never fix the debt if we don't fix the broken system. And how do you fix a broken system? First, you got to have conversations with citizens out in reality land, not in D.C., because you can't have these conversations in D.C. It is a war zone. It is an absolute war zone, and it is worse than ever. Maya McGinnis, who runs our organization, was at Harvard for the 
new freshman member, they, they run a program for all the in incoming new members of Congress. Nobody's having a conversation. They're not interested in talking to each other. Both sides have come loaded for bear to kill the enemy. So that makes it very difficult to get to hard things. So let's go out and talk to citizens around this country. So that's what I'm doing. That's why I quit my job. That's why I'm here in Cleveland. That's why I was in Omaha yesterday. That's why I'm going to Warren and Erie, and I'm going to every place I can in this country to have conversations with people like you who are civic leaders in your community and have the ability to click your heels and demand better of our system. You know, Abraham Lincoln used to say that uh, it's not enough to imagine that we can do better. We have to be better. And that was in his second inaugural to Congress. It is not enough to imagine that we can be better. We have to be better. And it means that every one of us is in our own lives. You don't have to run for Senate. You don't have to go raise $100 million to run a Senate campaign or be a Supreme Court justice. You don't have to do that. You can actually do it in your community. We can be more intentional about our civics training. We can be more intentional about our conversation, about our national story. We can be more demanding of our political leaders and ask them to abandon the ideological fight and actually solve some problems. Quit treating us like children, like we can't handle these. We, we know <laughs> we're adults. Tell us what the hard truths are. Look, when, it's a, you know, when Erskine talked about fixing Social Security, people say, oh, so don't touch that. You know, well, he said, well, look, if we moved it one year in eligibility and we did it 40 years from now, let's not rush anything. 40 years from now, you move it one year, you funded it for another 75 years. But you can't have that conversation because you will be disintegrated when the AARP lines up and says you're going to throw grandma in the snow. Another interesting thing that will fascinate you, we ran a social security workshop, an interactive online tool, and we brought a broad cross-section of political, left, right, in the middle, to actually go online and go through all the, you know, the hundred line items that could actually fix and repair social security. And what was so fascinating was there was a 92% convergence of agreement on how to do it. These are just citizens. Went online and just went through all the stuff, took a couple hours and came up and said, we got the answer. And it didn't matter whether it was the left, the right, the middle, 92% convergence. But here's the killer. When you take that same group and you put them onto that online interactive and you attach a sponsorship of one of the parties on each of those line items, the convergence drops to 30%. Same information, same data. The minute you put a partisan sponsorship on it, the convergence of agreement among citizens goes from 92% to 30. It's amazing. So we're so programmed to just hate the other side by definition. So what does it speak to? There's a deep and profound lack of trust. Our institutions don't work. We don't trust the other side. We think there's a hidden agenda. And think about all the other institutions that in their aggregate represent the American experiment. How's business doing? We blew up the world in 2008. I lost my 401k, I lost my mortgage, and nobody went to jail. So business wasn't doing too good, right? But we all know that that's not 100% true, but that's how people feel, right? Steve Schwartzman's still flying around in a G5, and his net worth's gone up 26%. I'm barely keeping even, right? So from an economic point of view, real wages are not growing. I am falling further, further and behind. The middle class is disappearing. So I'm feeling resentful that maybe business isn't the answer. Government can't decide anything. We just shut down the government for 35 days over $5 billion on a $4.4 trillion budget. This is nonsense. It's absolutely unconscionable that that's how we run our political affairs. And it's not a partisan thing. It's not about Trump versus the Democrat. They're just saying this is inexcusable that that is what passes for public policy. Right? And there's an old, does anybody ever see the movie Dr. Shivago? Great movie. Anyway, Boris Pasternak is a great author, but in that he says, our sin is our toleration. Our sin is our toleration. So if we as citizens tolerate this, we're in big trouble. 
I think we have an opportunity to correct this trajectory, and I would welcome all of your help in doing it. Please sign up at fixusnow.org. You can do that, and we are interested in building out a national platform that not only has a principles-based approach to problem solving in our political affairs, but it is also gonna be endorsing those kinds of reforms we think will reduce the polarization and will also help us endorse policies like being fiscally responsible that basically are operating on the premise that you can tell the American public uh, the truth, and if you tell them the truth, they will engage. And on that note, I will turn it over to Q&A. Karina? Okay. Um, thank you so much. This morning, we're listening to a form of Paul Stebbings, founder, former CEO, and Chairman Emeritus of World Fuel Services. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, members, guests, and those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at The City Club, and our staff will try to work it into our program. Holding the microphone today is City Club Marketing and Community Outreach Coordinator Julia Wong. Over there. May we have the first question, please? It looks like the debt on your chart grew significantly between, like, say, 2009. 2010, yeah. and I wonder if you could break down, it, it looks significant, sure. if, thank you. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So yeah, the, so the, the debt is, <laughs> there are a lot of things that are going on. People say, what are the real drivers of the debt? And you've got one school, Sot says, you know, if we just got rid of Nancy Pelosi's airplane, it would all be better. I mean, it's, so I would say back to the Alfred North Whitehead, you know, the, the cheap clarity, the bumper stickers. So there's a lot of complexity in what happened in that number. Um, if, if you, and I'll, if I may, I'll give you, if you look at the history of the debt, there's a great book by Bill White, who is the former mayor of Houston, called America's Fiscal Constitution, Triumph and Success. But what's interesting is it was a bipartisan article of faith that we always paid down the debt uh, over the years, all through the history of the country, up until the early 2000s, when the first big break was when we did a huge drug bill under the Medicare uh, reform, and we didn't pay for it. We actually just did it, but we had no funding mechanism for it. Then we actually began to engage in a couple of wars, which we also didn't fund, right? We went into deficit to fund those. And then you had a convergence of the baby boomers now coming into age. So to put that in some perspective, back in 1965, people paid in for every one person who got Social Security. Today, that's three, and in about 10 years, it'll be two. So you've got a huge bubble coming through on the entitlement spending side. You've got unfunded wars and then you add to it uh, the drug bill and other kinds of legislation that were not paid for, and then add the Great Recession. And so we had that great convergence, that perfect storm of events caused a huge bump right there. Now, the idea was that we were actually reducing our deficits again. Now, there's a lot of argument about what would success look like. And on the right, it's, you know, balance the perfect budget. I want a constitutional amendment, balanced budgets, no debt whatsoever. Well, most of you who run businesses know that you don't run on zero debt. The question is, what's a responsible level of debt? Simpson Bowles basically argued that the responsible level of debt to GDP would be somewhere between 60 and 65 percent, and the idea was to stabilize it, right? So let's get rational about stabilizing that equilibrium so it doesn't continue to grow into infinity. But the big bump there was a combination of those things, and the objective of Simpson Bowles was to then bring that trajectory back down by stabilizing. Let's reform the entitlement programs because the Social Security Trust Fund is scheduled to be insolvent by 2033 insolvent. 
and it means everybody from Paul Stebbins of Miami in New York City and you know grandma down the street here are going to get a 23% automatic cut in Social Security because we won't address it. That's unconscionable. I don't think we should be doing that. Now remember when Social Security was first invented by Franklin Roosevelt, he was a pretty smart politician. He made the eligibility at 65, but the average life expectancy back then was 63. So he figured everybody would be dead. So, you know, it wasn't going to, well, that, that's okay. Now life expectancies are into their 90s. So this was a real problem. So why don't we have the honest conversation? Anyway, there are a lot of things that converged at that time. But probably the two big killers that are going to get us right now are the escalation in health care costs, because we still have not addressed that. It is another example of the ideological football. Everybody. Everybody on Capitol Hill knows that health care is a disaster in this country in terms of its efficiencies and its ability. When you've got people making $35,000 a year paying a $6,000 deductible and a $6,000 premium, this is not a sustainable model. And everybody knows it, but it's become such an ideological football. I hate that man Obama. I love that man Obama. It became a war. And nobody's actually solving the problem. They're just using it for political bait. So health care outgrows the pace of the economy. That's a killer. And interest. And if anybody in this room thinks that maybe interest could go to even 5%, there's, there's, a, there's a debt world that says, well, you know, interest rates will be low forever, so don't worry about it. I don't know, maybe. I mean, I was there when it was 17%. Some of you were too. So if it goes to 5%, interest is what's going to kill us. It'll end up being you know, 20%, 25% of the debt. So that's crowding out wages. That's crowding out home mortgages. That's crowding out student loans. So if I was a young person today, I'd be really angry at us. But that bump right there, is about all that convergence, and we were on a trajectory downward. We've just pushed it back the other way. And ironically, we've done it at a time when the economy is growing. Normally, you do deficit spending when you're in a recession, and you're trying to stimulate the economy again. That's the logic behind And that's why you never go to zero. That's why balanced budgets amendments you know, in the Constitution don't work. You need to have the capacity to respond to economic realities. And we should have an intelligent conversation about that. It's not ideological. It's the, it's the right thing to do. But we're not doing that right now. We've just added to the deficit, and we're still growing. And the next recession that comes, we have absolutely no firepower to respond because of what we've done. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Mr. Mr. Sevens, yes. thank you so much for yeah. joining us this morning here in Cleveland. Uh, for a moment, try to share with us the perspective that our creditors have in this situation. Obviously, yeah. the debt is held as sure. bonds by companies, by foreign governments, by pension uh, organizations. Uh, there was a time, I, I believe it was last year in March, where China didn't buy U.S. bonds for a day, and the markets shook, and fortunately, the next morning, they started buying again. Mm -hmm. uh, thinking about the kind of the foreign policy aspect of this, how are creditors looking at this problem? Thank you. Sure. Uh, so uh, there was an old joke back during the Cold War, Heather may remember this, where the CIA, said, CIA used to say, don't have anybody in Russia, because when they collapse, they'll blame us. <laughs> so let them do it themselves, right? Well, that's a little bit what China's doing right now. They're saying, man, don't do anything. Just let them completely implode. While we are completely tied around an axle with all this political nonsense, we have no strategy. And they are, in the meantime, building the Belt and the Silk Road. They are building a naval base in Djibouti. They are going to build a canal in Nicaragua. They own every major port in the world. They've got an infrastructure bank, infrastructure bank bigger than our own. They're just watching us completely go to hell. Now, they have great ambitions in the world, as you might know. And this is an enormously powerful economy. 
Do not get confused. I've spent a lot of time in China. Go spend a day in Shanghai. That will focus your thoughts. I'm telling you, they, they are coming, and they are not confused, and they have an absolute strategy, and their economy is booming, and it's politically very conservative, and that may be a reality, but they know what they're doing. And one of those things that they want to do is make the Chinese yuan the reserve currency. So when you look at their infrastructure loans to uh, foreign areas around their region, they're doing it. They're forcing them to take it in Chinese currency, not U.S. dollars. Now, some are smart enough to try to get a little bit of the loan in U.S. dollars, but China's basically saying the United States has no money. They're bankrupt. They got no funds for us. They don't have the political strategic will from a foreign policy point of view to actually think in terms of how you'd be building, using your resources to fund collaborations for strategic influence. We've completely ceded Asia. That's over. I mean, it's game over. So they didn't have to fire a shot. All this stuff about us sending a couple of aircraft carriers around a couple of islands. Are you kidding? We're not going to start a war over that. The Chinese know it. And every single trade partner in Asia knows that. So it's nonsense. We're in complete delusion. So what it means is that they are very carefully executing their strategy to displace us. Now, if they ever even get close to making the Chinese yuan more of a reserve currency than it is today, then you're in real trouble. Because right now, we have been operating in the thesis that we will always have the dollar as the one and only safe harbor, and therefore everybody just needs us, and so you'll just buy it and you'll take our debt no matter what. That's hubris. That is hubris. And so I would argue that that's, I, I wouldn't, you know, if, if I was king for a day, I don't think I would be operating under that strategy. So I think there are very real and serious foreign policy implications for our strategic position in the world and our competitive position in the world. Michael Porter, who runs the Harvard Business, he does an annual study at the Harvard Business School on competitiveness. What is U.S. competitiveness? And in their most recent issue, they said that the single greatest threat to our global competitiveness is political dysfunction. We have no strategy. We have no clarity. We continue to fight about this stuff. So I think it's a very serious issue. I'm glad you raised it. I think it has deep implications for foreign policy. Microphone back there. It's fascinating. So I have a comment and a question. Yeah. Um, the comment is I think there is some um, cause for hope. I'm not going to do a political pitch, but there's this candidate for president I'm, I'm interested in. His name is Andrew Yang. And, if you, and he's pitching mostly non-ideologies, but uh, solutions to problems. And if you go into his kind of Facebook group, you've got, you've got Trump supporters, Bernie supporters, Jill Stein, Gary Johnson. These are pe people actually like talking about solving problems. So I think when you give people a problem to solve, they actually can get to, to solving it. When you give them an ideology, they're just, as you said, they're going to eat each other for breakfast. So I'm a reasonably smart person, but I don't, I don't have a head for numbers. <laughs> yeah, okay. So as, as, as a voter, like, are there like two top policies that like I could could advocate for that would do something about this? Because, sure. yeah. Yeah, so um, right now, we, you know, if you think about it in terms of, is there a bill on the Hill that I could get behind and ask my congressperson to support? Unfortunately, no, because right now, both sides, in, in expectation of 2020, do not want to take the political heat for actually addressing this issue. So both sides are saying there is no issue. It's just, a, we're just jointly going to continue to spend. So right now, that does not exist in a form. I would argue that the substance of the Simpson-Bowles Grand Bargain Compromise, which was a combination of reforming the mandated spending by law, would be changed to make it stabilized and sustainable over a longer period of time. That still exists. It's just sitting on a shelf. And then on the revenue side, comprehensive tax reform that went after the expenditures is still sitting on a shelf in the Ways and Means Committee. So there are policies that exist that if you put them forth as a package could be discussed. I would argue that in today's particular climate, 
it is not something that's there for you to vote for or even to have your congressman vote for. But so part of why we're doing what we're doing is to get to the point where there is a platform of programs that we think speak to these issues that we would like to then be able to give citizens the ability to go ask their representatives to please get behind. I don't have it for you today. I wish I did. Yeah. Oh, I'll, there's lots of stuff. Yeah, go on the website. You will find, you, believe me, you'll be there for years. There's lots of stuff. Yeah. Hey there. Awesome. Great presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the discourse is so severe, so dangerous, uh, so lethal, like you mentioned, with the global warming as well, you know, added mm -hmm. to these problems. Why not carry this campaign or fix us to a national convention level before the next election, having top leaders, scientifically minded, but like you mm -hmm. mentioned, scientifically mm -hmm. minded, technocrats, thought leaders, business leaders, for a salvage of the country and the future. It's a, it's a wonderful uh, suggestion. So uh, thank you for that, for that idea. Because in fact, you know, if I had my Harry Potter magic wand, you know, we would convene that immediately. Uh, but there are, there are, you know, the forces of evil, so to speak, are very powerful right now. I mean, I'll just give you an example. I mean, look what happened to a guy like Howard Schultz. Forget about whether you like Howard Schultz, but I mean, that person, he just said he was thinking about running as an independent. And boy, did the machine go into hypergear. They made sure that that guy is going to be dead and buried and like left in a gutter somewhere. I mean, they do not want that debate. So when you think about what would be rational people like us would say, why don't we get the people in a room right now, like intelligent adults, and let's have an honest conversation and fix this darn stuff and have tell the truth to the American people and engage them in the process. That's the logic. That is not how the political system is incented right now. Unfortunately. So the minute we were to go about and say, we're going to hold the convention, you know, to fix it all, people would say, no way is that going to happen, right? Because everybody wants their fingerprints on it. Everybody's going to say, well, not until you clear it through me. I would say that we are going to be able to get there, but it won't be by 2020. But there is a growing consensus that we should be having those kinds of conversations. The other thing that I would just throw in as a caution, the other thing that the American people do not want is a bunch of elites sitting in a room and deciding their future, right? They're tired of that. Somebody driving around a limousine saying, I got it, I got the answer, just shut up, I'll, I'll let you know what to do. You know, deplorables, remember that? Nobody wants to hear that right now. People want to be part of the conversation. So if we're going to do that, it is to some degree, yes, you need efficient technocrats, you need people who understand the issues and all that, but citizens need to be engaged actively in this conversation and treated like adults, and right now they're not. Youth needs to be at this table. We've completely marginalized them. They're not involved. I mean, look at that, Twitter, Twitter. We can take down a government in Egypt, <laughs> but we can't fix our own problems. So I would love to see that happen. Our objective is to have a national conversation in as many places as we can around this country. We would like to build a place where that energy can go, that exhausted majority that feels cynical about the extremes that they've been hijacked by has a place to actually go because they've been feeling politically homeless and lost. So let's build a place where they can go. And then around that energy, you have to have, what would be the structural reforms we would do? Fix the primary system, fix the gerrymandering, get rid of the districting problem, money in politics, those things you could actually have an agenda of things to fix and citizens would get behind it. Then you'd have a policy agenda. Let's stabilize the national debt. Let's make that a priority. Let's get rid of tax expenditures. Let's do real reform. You could build an agenda around that then you build support. And that's ultimately our objective, is to have both a place where the politically homeless can go to exercise this frustration that insists on the principle of responsible governance and that advocacy is not governance. You know, partisanship is not citizenship. Let's fix these problems. Here's the agenda. Here's some of the things we could fix. That's where we're going. We, that's why we're here. We're not there yet. I mean, it, it's, a big, it's a big lift. Hey, With regard to the national debt, yes, uh, sir. 
seems to me it's pretty discouraging recently all the publicity about the modern monetary theory mm -hmm. where a couple of politicians say, don't worry about this. When we get there, we'll just get the printing presses rolling sure. and issue some more money. What's, what's the problem? Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's a strange thing. You, you live in a world where, um, <laughs> you know, if you, it's sort of like if you say it, it's true. You know, this is a weird world we live in. You know, if you just say it loud enough, it becomes true. Well, okay, I, you know, the, the logic behind that argument is, hey, we owe a lot of it to ourselves, so if we just owe it to ourselves, eh, what's the big deal? I'm just borrowed from each other. So that's no big deal. The Chinese, yeah, they own some, and Japan owns some, but that's really no big deal. And interest rates, I mean, they've been pretty low. I mean, they're gonna be low for a long time, and I don't see any inflation, so what's the big deal? Okay, well, now back to some of these deeper, more systemic issues of our competitive position in the world. This is carefully eating away at our foundation, right? Well, if all of a sudden, you know, what's the tipping point of confidence? Because mostly this is about confidence. When all of a sudden there's a sense that, you know, maybe I don't want to buy the debt. Okay, now you're in real trouble. What if Chinese don't buy it? Who's going to buy it? What if you are trying to get your home loan and you're being crowded out by the federal government's borrowing, right? And the interest is now eating up more and more of our budget, and we can't make these investments in the core things that make us competitive, like infrastructure, education, science and technology, research and development, all the things that we should be funding that are positive and are constructive. We can't do that because all the money's been crowded out. I think sooner or later you do get inflation, and there are a few people in this room who remember what hyperinflation looks like. It will take out an economy like that. And boy, it tips fast. And so people, you know, we've got a whole generation that doesn't understand that and has never lived through that. And to th you know, now, yes, you could decide, I'm going to just do a whistle past the graveyard approach. Okay, I don't come from that world. I come from a world where if we know this much about something that complex, why wouldn't we do what it takes to fix it? It's, it is doable. But that takes political will, and right now the incentives punish people for having that kind of conversation. So the rhetoric becomes, no problem. It's the Alfred E. Newman fiscal policy. What, me worry? You know, no problem. I, I don't buy it. I mean, I don't buy it. But. Thank you very much for all your comments. Um, I, it's, to some, I, you might think I'm introducing some sort of partisanship, and I'm just talking about facts and demographics. I mean, the reason uh, why we're, Social Security's growing is because we're living older. Nobody's enacting a better, more generous Social Security. We're just living longer. And in contrast, I mean, the last tax cut that was passed, uh, you know, in 2017, those were a trillion and a half over 10 years of specific giveaways. And so there's really kind of a false discussion going on between the two. And Amen. so I, I, you really, that's, that's where the grand bargain really fell apart was in the accusations and the shooting. Yeah, so this is a great comment, and it speaks to the issue. You know, I'm telling you, if <laughs> I sat in the rooms where this was being worked on, if you guys, every one of you could be in that room, and I guarantee you, you would come up with the same common sense solution. If Social Security is fundamentally insolvent because of this demographic change, why wouldn't we, as responsible adults, sit in the room and do the reforms that would allow you to broaden that base and fund it for a longer period of time to protect the most vulnerable in our society? Everybody would say, that sounds like a pretty good thing to do, and there's a lot of ways to do it unless you end up on a postcard in a mailbox in Florida, which last I checked is a very important political state, accusing the other guy of throwing grandma in the snow or somebody else from, right, I mean, this is the problem. So it's a political issue, it's not a knowledge problem. 
We know how to do this. There are people in this room. Rachel, are you here? Where's Rachel? Talk to Rachel. Rachel, I mean, you want to get interested in the Social Security? She can bring you to the websites and you can, you can go home and fix it this afternoon. Believe me, you can. It's right there. And everybody knows this. That's the thing that's frustrating. On the tax side, this is the disingenuousness. This all came out of the ideology that all taxes, by definition, are bad. I don't think that anybody believes that's really true. But it fits on a bumper sticker. No taxes. Well, you know, it's easy. It becomes ideology. You know, if, you, if you're for taxes, then you must be evil. You're the enemy. This is nuts. This is no way to run an enterprise. It's no way to run a business, certainly not the United States. So taxes are a reality. The question is, how are they structured? Are they fair? And right now, people don't feel they're fair. And they don't like it when the hedge fund community gets carried interest, right, at 21% capital gains rate. And I'm, you know, by the way, I'm still paying my rate out here, and I don't have Steve Schwartzman's hedge fund money. So people get resentful because it doesn't seem fair. It seems like a rigged system. So I would argue that there's a cynicism and a distrust about an honest conversation about how we would do the right things. And we have diminished our sense of collective common enterprise and good, and we've reduced it to this ideological fight. And most people hate it, and they're sick of it. But they'd be perfectly willing to do the right thing for the country if they thought it was fair. Right now it's not fair. So that's what we're working on. I agree with your comment. Yeah. Sorry. Well, we've seen a lot of... Um former deficit hawks now telling us that we don't have a problem with debt, and also some legitimate economists, and sure. they tend to give a couple of arguments. I'd like your comments on them. Sure. One argument uh, is that as long as the increase in debt, interest rate, and so on in deficit does not exceed the growth rate of the GDP, right. we're exactly. okay. You may tell us that's not so. The other argument goes back to Alexander Hamilton, among others, and that is that uh, we need a certain amount of debt to provide liquidity. Mm -hmm. And the stronger part of that argument today is that it's not just liquidity, it's supporting the entire monetary system. There's not enough private debt, that is private securities, to support the money supply. So I don't know the uh, realities of that argument, and I'd like your comment on both. Sure. No, it's great. Well, I mean, so recently, you know, Warren Buffett, the Oracle of, of Omaha, uh, you know, said in his annual letter that, you know, I used to be really worried about deficits. I'm not as worried right now. And his point was, I've been investing for 77 years, and if I look at the dollars that would have gone into my investments and the return I would have gotten, it would have been far exceeded than if I'd been buying treasuries. I mean, that was sort of the logic. I mean, I'm not doing it justice, but in a sense, that's what he's saying. So people say, wow, well, Warren Buffett says it's okay, so what's the big... But Warren Buffett didn't, he didn't talk about the debt. He talked about deficits. Now, there is an argument that he is making there that's actually quite subtle. And it's in a, and believe me, Warren's a pretty sharp guy. He didn't get to be the head of Berkshire with all that money for no reason. But one of his messages there is that the Republicans are going to turn this into a political issue. And he's just basically saying that this idea that there should be no deficit spending is wrong. Deficit spending is a real tool. As businesses, we have debt. Now, you don't want to be so leveraged by some activist investor who takes over your company and takes all the equity out, and then the minute you have a downturn, you're bankrupt. That's not what we're talking about. But you don't need to be 100% equity in your balance sheet. You can have some debt. It's a responsible management of that curve. So Buffett is reminding us, and I think intelligently so, that deficits actually have a real function in our political discourse, right? But, if you, but you typically use them when things aren't doing so well. And that's when you get into this. Are you outgrowing or undergrowing the economy? And right now, I would say the next recession you get, you're going to find out pretty quickly, will select to be upside down. And then you have a question of where you should theoretically be using your deficit spending to help you through that period. Right now, we're doing the deficit spending in the middle of a growth period. 
That's the illogic part. So I buy the basic argument. There's truth in it, for, for sure. There's truth in it. But the idea that we could blithely dismiss the entire conversation by just saying, don't worry, we'll just continue to infinitely grow economically so much better that we'll never have to worry about the debt. I don't think that's true because there are parts of our deficit spending that are far outpacing the growth of the economy. That's what's threatening. Right, long term. In terms of the monetary issue, I mean, that's a pretty complicated economic, I mean, that's longer than this conversation, and there's lots of nuance to that. So I'm not going to, if I may, I'm going to punt on that one because we would have everybody, if you weren't sleeping already, you will absolutely be sleeping there. So I, I'm a little suspect of the, of the glibness of the thesis. There's a lot of nuance in that issue. So. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, this morning, we have been listening to a wonderful forum with Paul Stebbing, founder, former CEO, and chairman emeritus of World Fuel, Service, World Fuel Services. It is the hope of both the Cleveland Council on World Affairs and the City Club of Cleveland that this forum has provoked some thought around the issue of our national debt and the consequences that this debt is having for us, both nationally and internationally. This brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Mr. Stebbings, very much. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This forum is now adjourned. For information May, on upcoming speakers or for Council podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.